up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. The guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. Hello, everyone. My name is Laini Hameson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of Schools, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM or WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download or as a podcast. During the next hour, we'll first be talking to Naftuli Moster of Yafid about the emails that just leaked, which showed that the mayor and his top aides were involved in promising that he would delay the report into the investigations into the educational adequacy of ultra-Orthodox yeshivas and soften the report when it finally came out in exchange for the support of the Orthodox community for the renewal of mayoral control. Then we'll be talking to Kalira Salas Ramirez, an amazing parent leader and biomedical researcher and professor, about her thoughts on how schools should be reopened next year to, to make sure that it is done safely. We really have a jam-packed show today, so we'll get right to it. Neftuli, are you on the line? Yes, I am, and thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, First, can you explain the emails that were just leaked to the New York Post about the mayor's involvement in a scheme to delay an investigation report on the yeshivas? Sure, but do you mind if I first give your listeners a little bit of background on the issue? Sure, go ahead. All right, so in July of 2015, we spearheaded a complaint by 52 yeshiva graduates and parents to the DOE claiming that 39 yeshivas that we all attended or had children attending in New York City are not meeting the minimum standards required for non-public schools. That standard is referred to as substantial equivalency, meaning that private schools must be at least substantially equivalent to public schools. So the DOE announced an investigation, but it quickly became clear that they were just saying that for the appearance. But we kept at it. And finally, in May of 2017, so that's the end of the school year, the DOE told us in person and then the press that a report uh, on the investigation will be released that same summer. The summer came and went, but the report was not released. So at some point, the Department of Investigations launched an investigation into the DOE investigation and its delays. So meanwhile, a year later, in August of 2018, the DOE did finally release what they called an interim report. And then in December of 2019, that's very recently, the DOI released their report on their investigation, clearing the mayor of criminal wrongdoing and instead saying that they found that in the summer of 2017, right, when the DOE was expected to release the report, his team had engaged in what they called horse trading. Basically, his team made a deal to get passage of of the extension of mayoral control in exchange for delaying the report on the yeshivas. It seems like a very strange deal to most people who think, hey, there's no connection between public and private school, right? But anyway, last week, the New York Post reporter, Susan Edelman, published internal emails that indicate that the DOI withheld a few crucial pieces of information. So first, the mayor didn't merely have knowledge of the deal. He actually had to make the call to ultra-Orthodox lobbyists to seal the deal. So basically, he had to call them to beg them to pass or to to have their people in, in Albany 
Felder and Flanagan, um, at the time key legislators, um, to get them to pass ma- the extension of mayoral control. And in exchange, they would delay the report and they would also soften it. The DOI mentions in passing that the DOE had a generally accommodating approach <laughs> with the Yeshiva investigation, which in itself is problematic. But therefore, the DOI claimed the delay in the report didn't really impact the trajectory of the investigation. But the emails that that the reporter, the New York Post reporter, uh, released revealed, they indicate that that too was related to the deal. Meaning, part of the goodies that the deal that the city threw at yeshiva leaders in order to get that mayoral extension was a commitment to be gentle in the report, and that the report would only focus on the so-called progress instead of highlighting what actually was found in those yeshivas. And finally, the DOI never mentions that the purpose, what the purpose of the delay was. So to me, when we learned of this, of the delay, it seemed suspicious from the get-go that the deal was specifically to delay it till April of 2018, which would be right after Simcha Felder ran through an amendment in the legislature to try to weaken standards specifically for yeshivas. And in fact, the emails that we only now found uh, or discovered reveal that uh, this was actually part of the calculation and the mayor's team was aware of it and engaged in this cover-up. So if, if you think about it, I mean, it's really astonishing. Imagine if the city were investigating allegations of mass sexual abuse in a public school, right? And instead of actually swiftly taking action, they end up colluding with the abusers to change the law so that it no longer constitutes abuse in the first place. That's essentially um, you know, what's been happening, where the city was engaged in this cover-up to try to make the problem go away instead of actually fixing the problem. So one of these emails um, which showed that the mayor was not just peripherally involved, but essentially was, was, was leading the effort um, among his top aides to negotiate and to make promises to the Orthodox leaders that, number one, uh, the report would be delayed. Um, number two, that the report would be softened in its in conclusions. And number three, as Karen Goldmark, then a top city hall aide and now the deputy chancellor said, we hinted that they w- we would not make findings. And um, what we assume that means, and I'm wondering if your interpretation is the same, is that they would not name particular yeshivas. Um, that we're not complying with the law. And that's, in fact, what happened in the report as well. Is that true? Right, that's correct. Um, but uh, more specifically, it also means that even where they, if you if you read the report, I think it was like a, a 13-page uh, or 11-page document, they, they focus a lot, um, they basically divided the schools into like four different categories. And, and each of them were about on making progress towards substantial equivalency. In other words, instead of coming out and saying blatantly, look, we, we looked at 28 yeshivas and 26 of them did not meet substantial equivalency, they didn't say it that way. They said, here there were five that were beginning to make progress towards substantial equivalency, then there were 12 that were already well on their way to making progress. <laughs> it was like one day they'll begin working towards improving and towards providing a substantially equivalent education. All of it was framed. I mean, luckily, the media and the public could see right through it and basically interpret it as, look, 26 out of 28 are not meeting substantial equivalency. But you could see the length to which the city went to try to hide it. But you're also right about your point that they also didn't name the schools. So even at the very minimum, the city did say that five yeshivas did not even make any effort over four and a half years to remotely improve their education. And you have hundreds, if not thousands, of parents whose kids go to those yeshivas. They don't even know. 
they don't even know that their yeshiva is not substantially equivalent and hasn't even begun making improvements. And I think that's a blatant violation of the law on the part of the city, because even in the guidelines that have existed for many decades, it clearly says that they must notify the parents so that the parents can find alternatives. So what we're talking about is is basically two cover-ups. There's a cover-up going on by the mayor and his top aides into not uh, clearly releasing the truth about the yeshivas. And then there's a second cover-up by the Department of Investigation uh, with a head who's appointed by the mayor but is supposed to be independent of the mayor, um, releasing uh, abbreviated report that essentially cleared the mayor of direct involvement in the cover-up, which in itself is not, you know, does not clearly reflect what happened. And and it it is um, almost certain that the uh, Department of in- Investigation had access to these same emails that we saw um, last week printed in the New York Post, no? So that they had access Correct. to the same information, and yet they were covering up the cover-up. Um, Correct. Now, we're in a period of remote learning right now, and... Um, you know, the public school kids are involved in remote learning. Um, the issue with yeshivas is even more complex because a lot of the ultra-Orthodox yeshivas don't allow um, their students to use uh, a laptops Internet. or computers, mm-hmm. the Internet, do not allow them to access the Internet. Um, can you talk a little bit about what happened yesterday afternoon, or I guess maybe it was the day before yesterday, when a yeshiva in Brooklyn uh, was found to be still holding in-person classes? Right. So you're right about that, that um, most Hasidic, I, I want to be specific, there are, there are ultra-Orthodox communities pretty vast, and there are at least two main groups, Litvish, which are slightly more modern than the Hasidim. Um, in the Hasidic group, that's where the Internet is really banned and kids don't have access to computers or smartphones. So initially, most yeshivas begun, began doing um, phone call, like hotline um, um, classes. You know, So it would be like an hour and a half or two hours a day of Judaic studies, no secular education. This was in the beginning. Then after Passover, um, they kind of started, some of them started doing about 15 minutes or 30 minutes of secular education. But in recent days, we've been getting many reports of, of both newly pop-up yeshivas as well as established yeshivas that are returning to the classroom, some of them stopping um, their hotline um, education um, you know, simultaneously because they began, doing it, they began doing it in person. So what the NYPD found was really one of many. We're hearing that the majority of Hasidic boys' schools in Williamsburg, for instance, are operating, and I'm actually getting reports this morning that both the NYPD and media have discovered several other yeshivas right in Borough Park. So this is this is a, a pretty blatant problem. To me, it's not so much about you know one issue or another. It's more to me, it's a bit of a pattern. What we're finding with the secular education issue is is kind of the same thing. It's like you know we're doing our things and let the government you know kind of cave in and and then you know make it kosher retroactively right so that's what they tried to do when they changed the law on substantial equivalency when they tried to mitigate the findings of the investigation and and it seems that we're seeing the same thing here with the um, uh, remote learning versus in-person uh, classrooms so in other words your your allegation or you, your claim is that um, the, the the city hall and the police know that these in-person classes are happening, which violate 
um, the emergency um, law about protecting health, and they're doing little or nothing to stop it? Is that what you're saying? Well, I think I think in this case they are trying to take it more serious. The problem is yeshivas are quite quite uh, good at hiding. So, for instance, we're hearing that they'll open the doors for 15 minutes, all the kids get in, then they lock the door, turn off any lights that are visible from the outside, and they kind of congregate in, in internal rooms or like in basements. So I, I don't blame the city entirely for that, but I will tell you, I've heard from parents who filed complaints on 311, for instance. Let's say they would file the complaint at midnight saying that during the day this is what's happening or this happened today and it'll happen tomorrow. Then 15 minutes later, the the um, the case would be closed, and it would say that the NYPD went to check, and they found no classroom. Now think about it. Of course, it's midnight. You'll find no classroom. <laughs> the the allegation in the in the complaint was that it was happening during daytime. So so I don't know how much of this is intentionally on the part of the city to try to cover, but I'll tell you that's not the point. The point that yeshivas feel that they can get away with it comes after decade-long pandering to these same yeshiva leaders on many issues, such as secular education, such as, um, you know, the measles crisis in the past, uh, you know, things like that. So the problem is, you know, while you and I have to beg, uh, you know, for, for access to government officials and to get them to do the right thing, many yeshiva leaders have kind of like a direct line and they kind of like get things done uh, very quickly. I think we may have lost Naftuli. I hope that I'm on, on the line. Uh, Michael, can you... Uh Hey, we just got yeah. we just got reconnected. Oh, good. All right. So yeah, so the the, the Orthodox community has or has a huge political influence. Um, they are also growing in number all the time. Um, what is what is Yafed doing to address the situation, and and how can our listeners help? Right. So I mean, as for you know the growth and the uh, tremendous power, um, you know I think elected officials, you know, there are many even good elected officials on issues that you and I care about, but when it comes to, you know, working with Agudath Israel, that's the ultra-Orthodox lobbyist, lobbying group, they, it's all like hands-off. Everyone is afraid. You'll notice not one of them shared any of the articles from the New York Post or anything like that about the social distancing violations. So there's something odd about that, and it kind of indicates how powerful Agudath Israel and um, their connected people are. Um, but as for our issue, at this time, of course, we're still insisting that the city must continue to enforce substantial equivalency, but we're also looking at the state education department who are looking at, who have regulations before them, proposed regulations that would kind of um, make enforcement of substantial equivalency more automatic. It would require reviewing every non-public school um, every five years at the minimum, um, and it would take the politics out of it, right? It would no longer be dependent on a, a mayor or another local official who, who, may, who may want to pander to the, to the yeshiva leaders. So we're asking the state education department and the board of regents to finally, once and for all, pass those regulations. And finally, we're calling on the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, to launch an investigation into the mayor's conduct and his team um, with the yeshiva leaders, as well as into the DOI to see if they, too, were shielding the mayor from real criticism. So if people want to help out, um, should they go to your website? and, and Absolutely. And People so, should visit our website. They should follow us on social media. On Twitter, we're at Yafed.org. On Facebook, I believe, we're Yafed.org. Um, and to, to stay in touch and to also 
pushback. The, the yeshiva lobbyists have like about 500 different PR people, self-appointed mostly, and there's very little pushback. For instance, um, when the state proposed these new regulations and they opened it up for public comment, the yeshiva leaders managed to get tens of thousands of people to submit comment in opposition of their regulations, really with little knowledge of what it is. Um, and we need the, the general public to be mindful of it and to understand how this doesn't just impact a, a insular Hasidic community, it impacts broader society, whether it means dependence and government assistance, or it could play out in the case of, of a, a, on a crisis like now, the health crisis. But the point is that it's in the interest of the entire citizenry that all children get a basic education. Thank you so much, Neftuli. Your work is so important. Thank you for being with us today, and I hope um, that you might um, join us again soon. Sure, and thank you so much for having me. Good luck. Thank you. So I just wanted to, to make a few points before we bring on our next guest, Kaliris. Um, this is WBAI-FM, 99.5 uh, on your dial. The ultra-Orthodox student population is the fastest growing student population in the city, and it's so important that they, too, get an adequate education. And something about this story about the wheeling and dealing behind mayoral control really occurred to me when I heard about it, because one of the reasons across the country that so many districts have separately elected school boards, instead of putting the, the total control of our public schools into on one person's hands is that they wanted uh, people wanted to keep education separate from the ordinary political wheeling and dealing that goes on every day and so that kids education would not be bargained away for something else um, would be kept inviolate um, of politics as much as possible and what this story really shows is that um, to keep uh, and extend his autocratic uh, control over public schools, Mayor de Blasio traded away um, essentially the adequate education of thousands of yeshiva kids. Um, and so it's just an, an example of why mayoral control is really not the best system possible and that we really do need a separate system of governance that has mayoral input but that is not completely controlled by the mayor. Um, now I'd like to introduce Kalira Salas Ramirez, who's one of the smartest, most amazing people I know. Uh, Kaliris is a research neuroscientist, a professor who teaches medical students, a single mom with two sons, and a parent leader in her district in East Harlem. She's so active on so many issues in so many ways, it's hard to keep all of them straight sometime. Kaliris, are you there? I'm here. Thank you for that introduction. You know, sometimes I find it hard to keep it straight as well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you're so impressive. I don't know how you do everything that you do, but I do see that I get emails from you sometimes in the middle of the night. So I know you probably are working 20 hours a day. Uh, first, can you just give us a little bit of, of information about your professional background and what your, 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 your main job is, your professional yeah. job? Yeah, so I've been at the CUNY School of Medicine for roughly nine years. Um, I'm privileged to teach students that are in a BSMD program, so they come straight out of high school into our medical program. Um, they spend three years uh, working on their undergraduate degree, and now we are um, an accredited medical school, so they stay with us for four years 
um, as they finish their medical degree. Um, so I have I'm so lucky to have access to students for a total of seven years. Um, I'm part of their medical training, so I teach in courses like human reproduction um, and endocrinology, which is part of my expertise. But I mostly spend time teaching them neuroscience. Um, in addition, I have my own research lab. So since I was a kid, I've been fascinated with decision making, um, particularly when it comes to different types of abnormal psychology. Um, and so I've spent a lot of time studying the adolescent brain, which is completely different <laughs> than any other stage of our life, um, but also how drugs impact the adolescent brain and, and the brain throughout different stages of development. And currently we're looking at interventions for cognitive decline as a result of drug exposure. Um, and so I look, I'm a behavioral neuroscientist, so I always look to see whether drugs impact behavior and then the kinds of interventions that um, I'm interested in are um, exercise as well as natural interventions to see whether we can restore what these drugs break in the brain. So that's all so fascinating and we could have an hour show just about your research however yes. that's just one aspect of the many roles that you fill you're also a single parent and mom to two sons one of whom was born recently is that right yeah i have a he'll be nine months and two days um and so it's after feeling comfortable with one child. Um, now I, I have a second in the mix. Um, so it's back to breastfeeding and, you know, schedules and, you know, making sure that the little one um, is safe from the extreme love that the older brother <laughs> demonstrates. <laughs> and so the older brother, he's in third grade, is that right? He's in third grade at Central Park East One. And how is the remote learning going on? Remote learning has been a little bit challenging for us. Um, my son uh, has an IEP, um, and one of the things of, of his IEP is that he has a one-on-one -on -one para because of behavioral dysregulation, um, which with the support of the para, he's been doing amazing. I'm fortunate that my son doesn't have any cognitive or academic delays, um, but not having the structure and the consistency of actual, the physical uh, school and access to his teachers in a physical way, he's very much a physical person, um, has been a little challenging. So at first it started with a lot of phone calls, a lot of Google Meets um, with his teachers, um, but he would get incredibly distracted. Um, and so the burden has really fallen on me. Um, we, he and I work well together. We were alone as a team for eight years, so we know each other pretty well. Um, and so we have the ability to work well. Um, but that also comes at the expense of my, my job. I have mm -hmm. to be in meetings um, and I have to tend to my students as well. Um, and, you know, trying to fight for the things that we need to fight for, for everybody to have an equitable school system. Um, also comes into play into our scheduling. So I've gotten to a place where if we can do one or two assignments a day, I'm okay with that. Yeah, that sounds yeah. great. <laughs> one or two is enough, <laughs> I think. Can you talk a little bit about how your parent activism started? Because that's a fascinating story as well. Yeah, so I, I'm not originally from New York. Um, I was born, raised, and educated on the island of Puerto Rico, and I had zero knowledge of the public education system in New York City. Um, and 
I started researching and looking for schools, considering schools when my son was two years old, because I kept hearing that the public education system was really complicated in New York. Um, and very quickly, a lot of people, I live in East Harlem, so very quickly, a lot of people were like, oh my God, you, it's perfect. You're in District 4, you need to go to Central Park East 1. Um, and so I fell in love with this small progressive school that has a rich history founded by Deborah Meyer in 1975. It's the oldest public progressive school in New York City. Um, at the time, they had a, uh, most of the teachers were veteran staff that had been there anywhere from eight years to 30 years. Um, his pre-K teacher was um, going to be Yvonne Smith, who had been at the school for 30 odd years. Um, so I felt incredibly excited when we finally were, ex were uh, accepted into the school, admitted into the school, um, because the school is based on inquiry-based learning, problem-based learning. It's got an emergent curriculum. So I knew that he would be incredibly supported um, and that that type of learning and connection to learning are the things that we do in higher ed as well. So I felt like my son, even at pre-K, was going to be what they call in quotes college ready <laughs> mm -hmm. um but or on his way or on his way <laughs> <laughs> and then um, and just so that our listeners understand in basic language that th this involves a lot of project-based learning rather than um worksheets or 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 rote learning um kids are encouraged to um pursue their own interests and actually create projects around various different subjects. Is that how yeah. you would describe it? Yeah, and it's amazing. A lot of people are like, wait a minute, this is so loosey-goosey. They get so much freedom and so much free time, but it's it's actually the opposite. You have to have such a structured day um, in a progressive school. Um, we have integrated collaborative teaching, which means that there is a special ed teacher and a general ed teacher in every classroom, as well as a paraprofessional. Um, and there are blocks of time that are dedicated to specific subjects. And the kids are engaging in this collaborative teaching, teaching the teachers a lot of the time are facilitators mm -hmm. um, and they're also bridged classrooms. So you have a, a three ages within one classroom. Um, so the kids also help each other learn um, and enriching their experience, right? Because they get to engage in critical thinking and problem solving with each other before an adult intervenes. Mm -hmm. which is all part of increasing those intrinsic motivators um, for learning. Uh, so it's it's we do have worksheets, <laughs> but the worksheets are typically tailored. So, for example, instead of saying uh, instead of telling a child from New York City, oh, you, you're on the farm and you have three cows. What happens if you add three horses? It'll it'll say, well, Sebastian had three cookies. What happens if Hannah eats two of them? It's very personalized to the kids that are in the classroom, um, so they connect more with the material. And so what happened when he entered the school that, that aroused your activism? Yeah, so I was super psyched. Um, he Again, he had Yvonne Smith as his pre-K teacher who had been a progressive educator for 30-odd years. Um, it, it, he made a seamless transition um, into the school. And then a couple months in, we get a letter from um, the staff at Central Park East One. We have a lot of listservs where we're all connected. Um, we believe in democracy and it's a staff run school. 
there was a new principal that had been named that summer before we started in the school at, in 2015. Um, and she didn't believe that progressive education worked for children that were black, bla brown, and of low income. Um, and she was basically imposing prepackaged curriculum um, and wanted to change the structure of the school, wanted to change the, the democratic aspect of the school. Um, and teachers were concerned. Um, and at first it just started with letters to the superintendent, letters to the Department of Education saying, we don't think this person is a good fit. What can we do? Can we have conversations? Um, and they we literally, uh, metaphorically and in, and in reality, we got door slammed. It was like, no, this is the principal. This is who we've decided you're going to have and you're going to deal with it. Um, and, and at the time, Carmen Farina was our chancellor. She had a very sort of top-down authoritarian approach to these things. And as a former principal, she sort of believed that principals should run the show. Yeah. Um, you guys did some of the most amazing parent organizing I've ever seen. The parents at, at Central Park East one. Um, you had petitions. You had email campaigns. You had. You did great outreach to the media. Um, you showed up at every panel for educational policy meeting. You did videos. You took over school leadership team meetings. I mean, it was a nonstop press. For how long did that campaign go on? For 18 months. <laughs> so every month we were at the PP, and you're absolutely right. We did rallies. We had a, our first rally was in May of 2016. We had 400 people come at Tweed. Not not many people are able to do that but it's because of the rich history of central park east one it was really easy to connect with educators activists and advocates that really believe that this education does serve all children um, so we were fortunate to have a lot of allies and we were also fortunate to have a community that is incredibly committed to children um, both teachers and parents um, unfortunately, during that time, two of our veteran staff were removed from the school in um, bogus allegations that also increased the activism because we knew that the charges were bogus. Um, mm -hmm. Both the UFT chapter leader and the UFT delegate were the ones that were removed. So that invigorated the, the UFT at the end <laughs> to mm -hmm. kind of help us out. Um, and they so also, forth. there was also evidence uh, that the principal brought in um, young students without alerting yes. their parents to get them to say certain things against certain teachers. Is that right? Yes, yes. And that was actually one of the first things that happened, which is crazy. Kids were getting brought in um, and she was guiding them to say things against um, the first teacher that was removed. And then when it came to his trial, which he spent 14 months in the rubber room, um, Catlin Preston, who we absolutely love and adore, um, we just celebrated his third anniversary of being exonerated. Uh, mm -hmm. Once the children, the the few children that actually testified at the trial retracted the things that were said, um, again, because they were kind of being coached by the principal. It would um, make such a great movie. I mean, you know, yeah. I just think that somebody, <laughs> somebody listening, if you're a screenwriter, director, whatever, you should really take this up. Yeah, and let so us we, know. Yeah, we have yeah. plenty of data for you. It took 18 months. Finally, finally, months. the chancellor conceded and replaced the principal and yep. put someone else in charge who's now your permanent principal. Is that right? Yeah. And doing a good job. 
May 15th, 2017. We will never forget that day. Mm -hmm. um, Monica Garg was removed from Central Park East 1. Um, we were actually removed in general from the district. So we actually spent two months that we were under the leadership of a different superintendent that mm -hmm. led the C30 process. Um, the principal the, hiring process is the C30, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, and uh, we, uh, Gabriel Feldberg from Brooklyn was named as our new principal, and we are happy. You know, we're still rebuilding. It's hard during that time. We lost so much staff, um, mm -hmm. and we've had to really rebuild, um, and we've had to build confidence. Um, there's been a lot of trauma also. Um, the children, the children that had all these teachers removed are currently graduating. So it's been several years that they've had to get used to new staff, a new leadership, um, and to feel safe in that space. Cause we were pulling them out all the time <laughs> for strikes yeah. and for different events. So it's been a process, a healing process, but we've been fortunate again to have a very committed community that has helped us move things forward. And we feel like we're in a good place. Um, we were recently put on the um, comprehensive support and improvement list. So it's CSI, and so the state has actually designated us as a struggling or failing school, um, mostly due to our 80% opt-out. And again, that's a different conversation. An but opt-out of testing, opt-out of the state test is what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but it has put us in a place where it has really helped us really engage in intentional work around pedagogical practices and just documenting and just making sure that we've onboarded these new teachers to just reestablish that strong foundation um, of progressive practices at Central Park East One. So we feel very optimistic about the future and, and making sure that, that CPE is around for many, many more children for the next decades to come. So um, now let's switch to the subject of the, the main subject that, that I really wanted to delve into with you, which is the various um, plans people are putting forward in terms of uh, the potential of reopening schools in the fall. Yeah. Um, the mayor and the governor have both set up various panels and task forces uh, with, you know, tens and, and 20s and 30s and 40s of members to provide them advice about uh, reopening schools if it's going to happen in the fall. Um, you noticed something really interesting about these various task forces that were appointed. Um, that I, Can you talk, uh, tell us what you noticed about them? Well, there, there were... A couple of things that I noticed, but the first thing that really struck me, again, as a developmental behavioral neuroscientist was that there were no, and a, and a medical trainer, there were no physicians in the task force, which I think is mm -hmm. incredibly important, um, whether it be an emergency, somebody from the emergency room or a pediatrician that can really speak to how COVID has impacted the health of children um, and teachers. Um, I also am concerned that there's no public health expert or epidemiologist that can help us in terms of modeling and compare um, the incidences of this virus compared to the flu or other um, public health issues. Um, and at least in, in the governor's group, there's no developmental or cognitive neuroscientist. Um, again, when we're talking about benchmarks, mental health issues, the needs of children, um, we really think, really need to think about the whole child um, and really focus on providing those types of supports 
um, for all children. And so um, I think that one of the things that has really struck me being a parent advocate and a, and a scientist and an educator is that I have to talk to these groups of people in silos. I'll have to go to a public health expert. I'll have to go to a physician to get this information. And I've never been in a space where we're all together. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's a disservice in terms of how we're really, especially now with this pandemic, how we're thinking about education for children. Yeah, it's really quite astonishing that they have separate panels of public health and, and medical people, and then but no interaction with the education task forces and advisory groups. And it really makes no sense at all. I mean, another thing that many people noted about the governor's task force in particular is it did not contain a single educator or parent or advocate from New York City. Yeah. which is quite incredible considering New York City has, I think, 40% of the public school students in the entire state. So yeah. he really disrespected New York City in putting together his task force. Another thing of great concern, even before we heard who was on the task force, was the fact that he had enlisted the Gates Foundation to uh, sort of help him reimagine education in the state, which in his mind meant, why do we have to have physical classrooms at all? Why can't we just do all education remotely from now on? Which of course scares the hell out of people, especially when they see all the problems and deficiencies with remote education this year. Um, so well, you know, it scares yeah. the hell out of me as a, as a neuroscientist and understanding how cognition works for people, right? Um, we there's there's a lot to be said with that social con contact that we have with the teachers um, and that children have with each other. Um, it's funny, you know, even the question of like, how is my son doing with remote learning? He's gone to this school that has centered him for so many years and that has centered relationships. <laughs> And so now he's trying to do that with a screen. <laughs> and yeah. so, of course, he's going to struggle. Of course, a lot of children are going to struggle um, because there's a lot to be said to, about that physical touch. There's a lot to be said about looking at people's body language and how we communicate our feelings and emotions. There's a lot of things that we don't have to say that we communicate with our body. Um, and so it, it lends itself to just to a disaster. I mean, we're talking now about how social media has really impacted the social interactions of adolescents and how it's affected the adolescent brain, um, how screen time has to be limited for children because of, there's overstimulation to the brain. Um, so we definitely would be impacting cognitive ability significantly if we engage solely in remote learning um, for children during these developmental milestones. Right. So much of learning is really a social process yeah. and driven by personal interactions with with your teacher and, and students with each other. And that part of the equation cannot be replaced or substituted by learning through computers, no matter how many Zoom calls you have. It's just not the same. Yeah. And at the same time, I think people are realizing more than ever that computer-based learning does not um, work for many students, and especially those students who need the help the most, right. who really yeah. need the personal interaction and the feedback from their teachers. We are forced into a situation where that's the primary modality of learning that's happening now. So 
let's move on to next year because I, I find it one of the naughtiest, most complex problems I've ever encountered in all my years as an education advocate. I can see both sides so clearly that we need to come back to real classrooms and real personal interaction to make learning work again and to really engage students in the whole project of learning. But at the same time, there are real important and scary health concerns that go into that personal interaction. And, um, you know, the, the spread, we don't, it's a virus we don't understand very well. We're learning a little bit about it, but it's becoming more and more clear that not only can um, children spread the disease very effectively, but they can also be seriously affected um, themselves by, 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 by the effects of the virus. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. Last night, I'm, I've, we've created this community group called Parents Supporting Parents. And last night, I had two of my former students that are physicians in an emergency um, department talk to them about um, COVID and their experiences in COVID. And I think I'm even more mortified <laughs> now than I than I was before. Um, one of the things that is scary, as you said, we don't know enough about COVID. Um, now there are reports that there are mutations that may be more resistant um, and may um, add to the complications of COVID. Um, at first, we didn't think that children were capable, they were just hosts, they were carriers, and they were asymptomatic, which is a big issue. Um, again, if we're going to be reopening schools, you have children that are with adults um, that may be working, um, that could be carriers of the virus, and in turn, um, they could uh, give the virus to other adults or to other children um, with contact. Um, and so that's, that's one um, big issue. Now we have seen in the last couple of weeks that there can be complications um, of COVID in children. So they could be carriers of the virus and may not manifest the virus, but they can have um, pulmonary inflammatory multi-system syndrome or PIMS, um, and which looks very much like Kawasaki's disease, which could still land the child in the hospital for um, a month. Some children have died of having the virus. Um, and additional respiratory complications and different types. It just really depends how the child resists or, or deals with that inflammation. Um, and the public school system has lost over 75 people, um, teachers, uh, security officers, staff. Um, there have been a C, the CEC actually lost a member of CEC5. Um, so there are parents that um, have been impacted. Yeah, the CECs are the community education councils that are the elected parent representatives from every district that's supposed to um, give input and guidance on policies in their school district. Yeah, so we have communities at large that are being really affected. And that's just the physical aspect of it, right? So that's mm -hmm. just respiratory fevers, coughs. Um, and then there's the mental health aspect of it where we're having children and families deal with grief with a lot of trauma. Um, people have lost their jobs. Um, we, we mention, you know, we really think about how remote learning has affected the general students that are in general education. 
But, you know, the other conversation is how COVID and remote learning has really affected children that have IEPs, that have disabilities, um, that are English language learners, that don't have support at home. So we have Mm -hmm. a large portion of our student population that really stopped school in March. and so it, that that's the other conversation that needs to be had when reopening schools, which, again, is a concern in terms of the task forces or the advisory committees that both the governor and the mayor um, have put together that, you know, can are these people capable of really thinking about holistically all of these consequences and all of these circumstances that our children and educators are living with um, in how we're going to come back to the schools. So it's about protective gear. Um, so we don't have enough PPE for hospitals. Are we going to have enough protective gear for teachers? Um, masks are a must. Are kids going to want to wear masks mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is a big question. And not just that, but what about kids with sensory issues um, that just can't wear the masks? It just They physically cannot tolerate having that on their face. Um, so that's a concern. Um, and then we have the hygiene aspect of it. So uh, what are, how much time are we going to spend in the day making sure that children are washing their hands? Um, how long does the virus stay on materials? So if they're working on materials, how often do we have to clean them up? Um, and so really thinking systematically about how we're going to protect children and educators from the virus. And then there's the issue of social distancing, of course, and yes. that's a that's a key issue in terms of, of having to have much smaller classes and much less crowded classrooms than we have in most schools across the city, which then leads one to the um, necessity of having either split schedules, staggered schedules, um, where only half the kids would be in school at one time, and then what happens to the other half of the school, of uh, the students at that time. Uh, there are so many issues to be considered. Um, it's hard to imagine how we're going to create plans that will both benefit kids educationally, emotionally, psychologically, and in terms of their physical health all at once. It really is tremendously complex. Um, you know, if I were the governor or the mayor, I would definitely want you on this ta- on on all of my task forces because you're uniquely qualified as a parent leader, as a biomedical expert, an expert in both physical and emotional health. Um, if you had to sum up your advice, which I know is really difficult, but if you had to do that in a few sentences, um, to be sent to the Board of Regents, to the Governor, to the Mayor, to the Chancellor, what would you say? Well, first thing I'm going to say is nobody's called me yet. (laughs) So (laughs) if they want to, hit me up. I'm available. Um, Because this is something that that I've been thinking about a lot, and it's something that really scares me, Um, again, as a medical educator, as a neuroscientist, as a parent. Like, I'm, this is at the top of my brain all day, every day. Um, so I think, again, it's going to be a two-prong approach. How is it that we protect children um, physically? So we have to think about dividers. We have to think about temperature checks during the day. We have to think about social distancing, as you mentioned. So even if we have 
um, a staggered schedule or an alternate schedule for different days. What will that look like? Which children will be the ones there? There are some countries that have decided to start elementary school children first and to limit the class size to 10 or 15 students. Um, in addition to maybe limiting like physical education, where still letting them go outside, um, taking into account social distancing. Um, in terms of even eating, they can't share food. How many times has a five-year-old reached out to their friend's plate and grabbed a carrot stick? Um, so really, really being intentional and thinking about every possible way that these children can have contact with each other and with their teachers and how it is that we're going to protect them with dividers, uh, again, with the space that they need. Um, and just taking time, There's, we're going to have to take significant time to inform our communities of what these protocols are going to be. We can't just be like, okay, here, you know, September 7th, we're back in school, welcome all. That can't happen. Um, so what are the sorts of things that we're gonna do to prepare communities? Parents, we're not gonna be able to go in schools. Um, it's gonna be really hard because we have to protect children. So is there gonna be a designated parent space? What parents are the ones gonna be allowed inside the school, if at all? So there's gotta be significant conversation in terms of what this physical contact is going to look like. Um, educators will need to have protective gear um, and will also be need to be informed about disinfecting disinfectant protocols. They have to disinfect materials. They have to um, in, you know, have, be ultra vigilant, which would potentially mean more adults in a classroom, which mm -hmm. will result in less children being able to be in that classroom because now the adults are taking up that space. Um, so so in, in terms of testing, I mean, this is one of my obsessions is how many people have been tested and yes. what it means to have the antibodies. Uh, recently, there so was a, a, a scientific report that came out, which was actually hopeful in that it seemed to find that, that people who had antibodies were no longer infectious, were no longer spreading the disease. And hopefully we're now no longer uh, themselves vulnerable to the disease. And so my question is, what kind of testing protocols would you recommend, if possible, um, next fall for either school staff or students? So it seems like the molecular tests are the ones that are more consistent. The antibody testing um, has been really controversial, and, ha and there have been a lot of um, false positives, uh, and and so people are like, oh, I have the antibodies, great, I'm not going to get infected, and that just hasn't been the case. Um, we do have to figure out how to um, provide free testing for as many people as possible, and I'm and I'm with Fauci in the sense of. Um, until we have a vaccine or some form of treatment, we are not out of the woods in any mm -hmm. way, shape, or form. Um, and so there are some studies, there are some labs, both in here in the United States and um, in Europe and in England um, that are showing some promise, um, but we're probably not gonna see a vaccine for another year or two. Um, and so, the, the consistency has to be with the molecular testing, um, which seems to be the most valid, and it still takes a couple of days. It's not like the flu that you get you know, your answer within an hour. 
the other concern for for me, especially in the fall, is that now we're also going to ha- we're going to have to deal with COVID and we also have the flu season. Mm-hmm. And so both COVID and flu, not <laughs> I mean, I just can't even begin to imagine um, the significant complications that the community is going to face um, with that. But and distinguishing um, the two without a test yeah. is going to be very hard. So the flu Absolutely. tests are are fairly accurate and yeah. fairly fast. Yes. So if a child gets sick, you might be able to determine that they have the flu rather than COVID. Of course, they should stay home no matter what. Yes. Um, and, and I will just, say any yeah. child that has significant respiratory complications, um, of course, it's up to the parent. But right then and there, that is a child that is absolutely vulnerable to any of these viruses. And I would strongly suggest that that would be a child that should stay home. Um, Just one more. We have to get off soon, but I just um, wanted to ask you about these um, Kawasaki-like syndrome that we're seeing more and more of. Since you are a medical expert, are there warning signs that parents should look out for um, to take their kid to the doctor or call their doctor um, before it becomes too serious? Yeah, it's the same in terms of respiratory distress. Um, right, so we're going to have shortness of breath, we're going to have fatigue, um, and you may also see some manifestations in the skin um, with children um, that have PIMS, um, but it's mostly pulmonary. Um, and so, I somehow thought that Kawasaki, the, this new syndrome, did not manifest itself in respiratory symptoms. It's a pulmonary multi multi. It's an pulmonary inflammatory multi-system syndrome. Mm-hmm. So there will be um, inflammatory responses in terms of respiratory distress um, as part of it, and as well with the skin. Um, in addition to, um, you know, again um, having some fatigue or some tiredness. Sometimes kids can't um, communicate like which one is you know one or the other. Um, mm-hmm. So. Those are some of the assessments and some of the questions that parents are going to have to ask their kids. Well, Clarice, thank you so much for being here. Um, you've imparted so much knowledge. And again, I hope that the, um, someone in either the mayor or the chancellor or the governor is listening right now. I, I know that the Board of Regents is very interested in putting together its own advisory board with people with a health background on it. So I hope that perhaps you can apply and be appointed. Um, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, before um, we go, I don't yeah. want to forget and stress the importance of mental health support once we go Mm -hmm. back to schools as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So counselors, social workers, um, having um, trauma-informed practices. Um, Children are gonna be dealing with grief. They're gonna be also dealing with, you know, significant amount of time that they spent with mom and dad where cleanliness and um, lack of safety has increased and so they're so close to their parent now. Um, Yeah, we have to go off. I've been told by the WBII people I have to log off at 10.55. Thank you so much. (laughs) And I'll have you on again, I promise. Um, This is Lainey Hameson. Okay. Thank you. Host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM. Um, 
next Wednesday, we're actually going to have a special guest who's Chancellor Betty Rose, of, uh, head of the Board of Regents and probably one of the most powerful education decision makers in New York State. Um, until then, be careful and be safe. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Cooking the lunch room ready to sell. You're lucky if you can find a seat. You're fortunate if you have time to eat.